Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's kind of fun to dig into fearless faith, radical trust, because we've been waiting for it for so long. We, as, as a staff person, I wrote the, uh, the, the Bible study that, that many of us will go through this week. I wrote that back in April and uh, edited it through. I shot the video. You'll laugh when you see the commercial at the offering. It's like a different guy. I mean, it's just, but, but, it, but it's fun to finally step out and step into this and, and think a little bit about existential questions of life. Today's sermon and the beautiful piece that the, the choir has just led us in leads us not to think of things that are so much here and now of what I've got to do, but leads us to think of things that are eternal and stuff that is warm and soulful and heartfelt rather than what I got to do. And so I'm the senior pastor. I get the privilege of kicking off this and, and thinking a little bit about Abraham. And I love that tagline, an audience of one. And I'm not Because God answered for him the big question. Now, the big question is not, what do I have to do? The big question does not, how do I look? How do people perceive me? The big question is not even what's most important to me or the one that, that defines our culture and our society. How do you feel about that? that that's, everything is, with, it's just the inconsistency and the fickleness of feelings is pervasive in our culture. So the big question is right here. And each one of us has to answer the question, who am I? For some of us, it's a lifetime thing. It's a lifetime pursuit. Who am I? And we've tried this and tried that and lived in this and lived in that and said, you know what? I am what I do. I, I am the following three things that I've tried and this thing I'm the best at. So this is who I am. Not so much. Who am I? When things are good and wonderful, how does that go in here? When things are really hard and painful, how do things go in here? Who am I when nobody's looking? Who am I when I'm in front of a crowd? All anchored to who am I? Now, I'm not foolish enough to think that you can leave church today and say, well, the pastor on a piece of paper gave me a document that says who I am. I can't necessarily do that for you today, but I can lead you to an individual whom God called immediately and directly and, and who based his whole life on that calling of God, and his name is Abraham. And you got to love Abraham. But answering that question, who am I, is a tough question to answer. And part of it is that it's simply the most difficult, deepest issue in human existence my fish in my backyard don't wake up in the morning and say, well, I wonder who I am. Matter of fact, the fish are so trained by what we do that when I open the back door, they come to the surface and you throw them the food and they're just trained. They're not de dealing with deep-seated issues. God made humanity in his image so that we could deal with deep-seated issues of who am I 
and taking time to figure out through a lifetime how that works. It's the deepest question in human existence. And the second thing that's hard to get after it is that modern life offers maximum opportunity, choices, and changes. I recently saw a super cool video of my wife's great-grandfather. Well, if you were to ask great-grandpa Fred Pashi, uh, Theodore Pashi, what, what his life was about, he would say, well, I was a pastor, and then I went from being a pastor to being a farmer and raising kids and family and all of those things. If you were to ask him the salient issues of being a pastor in the late 1800s, he would say, like when the crops die or, or when the river floods or when the, he wouldn't say, well, when the banks go under and John Deere wants a payment. And can't, you know, it's a whole different thing. My point is that life in 1890 is different than life in 2018. I mean, let me tell you something you already know. And so modern life and the place that we live and the context within which we live, when we say, who am I? There's more opportunities, choices, and changes going on now at a quicker rate than ever at the history of the world. And it doesn't look like that's changing anytime soon. And a lot of times we get so connected with what we have to do that we struggle with, who am I? Not a question of doing, but a question of being. And the other barrier to this is fascinating that there's no agreed upon answer. It's different for the Michaelises and the Clarks than it is for the Klinkenbergs and the Jokels. It's just different. There's different nuances, different contexts, different families of origin, different ideas and understandings of life, different places where you came from where you say, you know what, Clink, your life is different than mine because of what you've been asked to do and, and, and your calling's different than mine. So when, when I sit down and say, who am I? And, and, and I sit in a group of 15 people, there's 16 different answers, nuanced in 32 different ways. And then we all leave kind of wondering, huh, I wonder what or why or who. And so God gives us a lifetime to think about who am I. Now, when God comes down and visits with someone, people think that's great, right? I would, if I could have God come down and just talk to me and meet with me for 10 minutes around my kitchen table, we would have the best conversation in the history of the world. Don't wish for that. Because when God comes down and talks to somebody, their lives get infinitely more complicated and difficult, and it's never good. God comes down to Jonah and he says, the most powerful civilization, the biggest city in the history of the world right now is Nineveh. You go there and tell them they're corrupt and they need me. Oh, sure, good, I'll go. God comes down to Moses in a burning bush. He says, Moses, this is going to be great. You go to the most powerful man in the world and you tell him to let his 1.1 million slaves go. Uh, by the way, uh, when... When, 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 when he asks who says this by what authority, you just say, I am who I am has sent me. I mean, there's a little piece where God comes down and you're like, I think this would be great. Ah. Ask Moses and Paul and David and the people with whom God spoke face to face. It gets really hard when God comes down and says, this is who you are and this is your calling. Because who you can argue with? So when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between you and will greatly increase your numbers. Do you see the disconnect there from verse 1 and the end of verse 2? How old does the scripture say Abraham was? 
99. Anybody in church today 99? Okay, so we can talk about old people being 99 and plus, right? <laughs> now, I'm not an expert on procreation. My dad had three kids. He came from a family of six. Uh, I, I know families where they have 10, 12 kids. And I know that if you're going to have a big family, you've got to have a lot of kids. And at 99, your chance of having 10 kids is pretty much... So God comes to the 99-year-old, it's almost like a sarcastic joke. I'm going to give you a big family, Abraham. <laughs> right. When, when, when Sarah and I cuddle by the fire in the cool of the breeze, that's strictly for warmth and heat and love. There is no movement anywhere here, God. It's just not happening. And, and Sarah is 99. We have a, Lord, we went through the change of life decades ago. We're done with this. You're going to give me, how's it going to work? You see, when God comes and speaks to you face to face, he says things that don't make sense to us, but in an understanding of our identity and who we're called to be and what we're called to do. There we go. When, when we figure out what we're called to be and what we're called to do, God takes those impossible things and makes them real. So God called Abraham in two different ways. There was Abraham's first call, God called Abraham to God, by God, for God. So that Abraham's identity was found in the promise of God. If you looked at Abraham and said, who are you? Abraham said, that's easy. I'm a child of God. God came down to me and he said, I will be your God and you will be my person. And I'm going to live on the foundation of that. If you ask me who I am, I'm not Abraham the herdsman, Abraham the farmer, Abraham the leader, Abraham the father, Abraham the father of many nations. I'm Abraham who has been called to God, by God, for God. Everything that Abraham is about is about his identity being found in God. And Abraham could go back to this promise in Genesis 17, as well as the promises in Genesis 12, and throughout the times where God came to him and said, I'm not sure about what I'm thinking, but I know what God has said. And what God has said is that I am identified as his son. First call, primary call, to God, by God, for God. And then secondly is this alignment. It's the second call that wrapped up Abraham's life. Everything he did, he thought, he said, and all of his behavior, all for God. And as you read through and you study in your life groups and think a little bit about that, you will see this incredible alignment that because Abraham knew who he was, what he did aligned with who he was. Let me give you an example of that. God tested Abraham. How many sons did Father Abraham have? One. Yeah, it's not a fake question. He had one, and his name was Isaac. So God comes down to Abraham and says, hey, I, I, I got a deal for you. We're going to go have a sacrifice up on a mountain, and you're going to take Isaac and sacrifice him. Really? So Abraham probably at that time is probably closing in on 130, 140 and he says, take your one who I promised. I, I, I told you I'd give you a family. You take that one and you sacrifice him to me and it'll all be great. Fearless faith, radical trust. There was something deep inside of Abraham which said, this is going to be okay. He knew that Yahweh, our Lord, 
was not a God of child sacrifice. The other places, that was part of what they did, but not Yahweh. Abraham knew that God was a God of mercy and grace, not a God of judgment and capriciousness. And so, as they're walking up the, the mountain of Moriah, Isaac says to Abraham, we've got the fire and the wood and all the stuff. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham, knowing what God called him to, said, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Fearless faith, radical trust that when tested was refined and strengthened. Because Abraham knew who he was to God, by God, for God. And so his life wrapped around that promise. Everything he did, he thought, he said, his behavior, all for God. And sure as shooting, when push came to shove, a, a ram is caught in the thicket, Abraham and Isaac make a sacrifice to God. And God indeed provided what faith held onto and what trust let go of. So who are you? And what is the primary calling of your life? And whether you're 93 or 14, think. Because in our culture, we like to think that we are what we do. And we change with what we do. Who am I? I'm a son. Well, wait a minute. Now I'm a father. Well, wait a minute. Now maybe one day I'll be a grandfather. Well, now I'm a pastor, but then I'm a youth pastor. Now I'm a senior pastor. So who am I? Well, I'm, I'm in the choir. And, uh, well, I work, I, I work with numbers. I, what? See, that's the secondary calling of our life. The primary calling is to Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. See, God establishes that primary, primary sense of identity for you and me. So with Abraham, we can say, first, bottom line, good economics, bad economics, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, whatever my ethnicity, whatever my language of origin, wherever I came from, wherever I'm going, I belong first and foremost to God through Christ. So my identity and my worldview is rooted first in something that is not transient and ever-changing, but I'm rooted in something that's eternal and real, that's verified and verifiable. Jesus Christ was a real man who suffered and died and rose again. And after he rose from the dead, over 500 people saw him. That's more people than saw Adolf Hitler dead, and we all believe that Hitler was dead. More people saw Jesus alive after he had risen from the dead. So my identity is forged in Jesus, in the forgiveness of my sins, that God loves me and cares for me, and, and isn't some capricious God who says, walk before me and we'll see how it goes. God says, walk before me and be blameless. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my child. So at the bottom line of your life is not what you do, it's who you are. Your primary calling to Christ, by Christ, for Christ. And that's got a marvelous way of driving this profound, deep, rich sense of identity in us that is transcendent and not fleeting with the seasons of life. And our secondary calling, considering who God is in our lives 
and his sovereignty is that everyone, everywhere, and in everything should think, speak, live, and act entirely for him. That is that our identity aligns with our behavior. And the big challenge is not to confuse the primary and the secondary calling. And that's super hard. It just doesn't... Because the answer to the question is not a multiple choice. I am A, B, C, D. And we've been sold in our culture a bill of goods that I am the sum total of my experiences. Christians would say, not really true. I am the sum total of God's love for me first. And my experiences are fed and led along by God's love for me. So I'm Tim Klinkenberg, child of God, slash husband, slash parent, slash pastor, slash friend, slash Packer fan, slash Lakers fan, slash Ducks fan, but you know, slash enjoys fishing, slash shape, I'm strong. And the moment I say, I'm Tim Klinkenberg, mountain biker first, child of God second, and the irony is where I crash and burn. Because something has supplanted my identity. Something that is fleeting. Something that goes away and breaks down. The love of Jesus for you never breaks down, never grows cold, never gets old, never goes away. Because you can't untake Jesus from his cross. Primary call to God, by God, for God in Christ. Secondary call. Everything you have, everything you are, everything you do, aligned with your identity. And then given a lifetime to live that out. I love that piece. Because what that drives is a fearless faith that clings to Jesus. I watch the world unfold. This week I had to turn off some of the chats that, that I've been following and I've got friends that are very active on, their, uh, on, on instant messaging. And I sat in the Weir Canyon Loop on Friday and just turned them all off. Immediately my friends texted me back and said, you all right, you all right? I said, I'm fine. I said, I'm just sick of all the stimulus. I need to cling to Jesus first and best. Because somehow hanging on to him takes dissonance out of my soul and my spirit where my phone adds anxiety and dissonance. Fearless faith clings to Christ. It did for Abraham and David and Moses and Paul and Timothy and my grandpa and my dad and for me. To God, by God, for God, holding on in faith to the promises of Jesus. Fearless faith clings to Christ because there ain't nothing else. And radical trust is almost a little different thing. Radical trust is hard because it means we have to let go. And that's really hard. There's an understanding in American Christianity that, 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 that we do this much. And then in the 20% that's left over, well, we'll trust God for that. And that's not radical trust. Radical trust is saying, Lord, today stinks. 
And tomorrow don't look like it's getting any better. And it looks as if this is going to get more difficult before it gets easier. And I trust the whole kit and caboodle to you. Because you're the one who gave Abraham a son. And you gave that boy two boys. And you gave that whole generation 12 plus some daughters. And out of the line of Abraham, the promise you made that you would be his God. And he would be your people. That all of that stuff, I trust you. And I let go. And I let go of all the anxiety that goes with being a controlling person. Now, when you figure that out, call me. Because that's the hardest thing in the world. To let go and say, Lord, I trust you. It's really hard sometimes as a pastor to sit at someone's bedside and they say, you know what? Jim's going to go be with Jesus. And it used to be that I would want an answer to that question that was trite and simple, kind of like putting a sticker on a kindergarten's head. And as an older guy, an older pastor, a more seasoned man, I'm able to know in my soul that God will move them through this in a way that will be supernatural and they won't be able to comprehend or understand. But that the promise of Christ from Romans 8.23 where Paul writes, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You see, radical trust lets go of control and says, Lord, I am who you've made me to be and I'm following deeply after you in this life and I'm not afraid and I'm not anxious because who I am is found in you. One of the people of faith that I follow and I've read about, actually the, the, the Buddhist book I listened to is a book by Eric Metaxas. It came out four or five years ago about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wonderful book. Bonhoeffer was convicted in a court, of Nazi court, of you know, conspiring against the government, of trying to have Adolf Hitler assassinated. And, and he was guilty and found guilty. And his last months were in a prison. And uh, a young man... Uh, But Bonhoeffer's life was characterized by this intense sense of calling. If you've read his book, The Call of Discipleship, if you haven't, you may want to. It's an unreal book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's where he takes that Matthew, whatever, I got to move. But uh, this was Bonhoeffer's poem, a, a section of a poem he wrote at the end of his life that I thought was really powerful. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? My both at once, a hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, that I am thine. To God, by God, for God, first and best. Then everything you have, everything you are, and everything you do aligned around that core calling. In the name of Jesus.